Uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, Isaiah 7. Uh, you're going to want to not put your Bible away. Uh, in fact, uh, we're going we're gonna, to gonna, we're gonna be playing some sword drills. Uh, not really playing sword drills, but you're going to be turning, you're going to be flipping. There are going to be multiple passages that we uh, are going to use uh, this morning. So keep your Bible handy. Um, you'll need to, um, to flip around as you go. Uh, I can tell you now, if, you, if you're interested, Isaiah 7, 9, 11, 22, and then Luke 1. Um, so if you can do all that really quickly. Uh, and and for, for this Advent season, we're, um, we're, we're preaching through uh, various passages, you can tell, you know, this is not normal to necessarily use multiple passages for a sermon text, um, but as we consider the Christ of the Christmas carols, uh, so this morning uh, we are kind of using the, the Christmas song we're going to close with, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, uh, as our guide, as our framework, but as we work through these passages, I trust you will hear echoes of the songs we've already sung. Uh, you will hear, lo, how a rose air blooming in the passages we read. Uh, you'll hear, thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, as we read through the passages uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, we will begin, we'll, for now we will only read uh, Isaiah 7 uh, verses uh, 1 through uh, 17. We'll stop there. I'm going to ask, if you're able, please stand as we read God's word together. In the days of, of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of, Assyria is, the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people." And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you Weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey uh, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would use this, your word, uh, to teach us, to grow us in grace, uh, to deepen our love for you and our anticipation, not just of Christmas, but of the return of Christ. We pray this in your most precious name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I assume there are um, uh, people in this room, it's funny actually because I've already had a conversation today uh, about end times. Uh, Not so much what's this, what's that. The conversation was more about how can you even really know But the general overwhelming consensus in the world around us today is that that the world's getting darker and that that Israel, the nation, is going to be reinstated and that God's coming back soon, that Jesus is returning soon. And you, you perhaps may hold that view yourself, this notion that the world's getting darker, that it's that it's actually becoming more and more dangerous to be a Christian, that the church is on the verge of perhaps even dying, being, being removed from the face of the earth. Perhaps you, you're sort of keenly aware of the world in which we live and, and are convinced the church has never known the threat that it knows today. The church has never been threatened Um, like it is today. But let me encourage you. There's no reason for alarm. There's no reason for fear. There's no reason to think that the church will ever fail. Why do I say that? How do I know? How can I say that with such confidence? Well, one of the reasons is because we celebrate Christmas. Christmas actually is evidence that the church will never be crushed. It will never be destroyed. It will never be removed from this earth. And, and the, the song we're going to close with in just a few minutes uh, ranks right up there with uh, all the Christmas carols as a reminder of God's faithfulness to His promises. If you just glance through, O come, O come, Emmanuel, you'll hear evidence, reminders of the promises that God made to Israel, to his people, to the, the church uh, at the time of uh, Isaiah's life. Now, I have to warn you, um, as with many of our Christmas carols, it actually helps if you have a working knowledge of the King James. Uh, Because the ESV, which we use here on Sunday morning, didn't exist uh, at the time these hymns were written or translated. Uh, The King James Version was the English version 
that there was. And so you you'll may hear things from time to time and go, I got no idea what that means. But if you were one of those who sort of had the King James Version running around in your head, it would be more familiar to you. I have to even tell you, I have one of my, one of the brightest uh, professors I ever had in seminary uh, uses the King James exclusively. How does this hymn, how does this Christmas carol help us in our fear for the church? It's written in the 12th century. Uh, We don't know who wrote it, uh, but it's obviously hundreds and hundreds of, of years old. Uh, this this carol and and the writer of uh, this song of this hymn has a very solid understanding of the prophet Isaiah and he picks up on images from uh, a number of the prophets but especially from Isaiah and uses those images to communicate to us not just who Jesus is, not just whose birth we celebrate, but to actually communicate to us hope and confidence in God and His promises. These images remind us that God is faithful to accomplish His purposes. Isaiah is writing to uh, Judah as a, a bit of a reminder of your Old Testament history Israel was one nation under Saul, under David, under Solomon. After that, it divided into two nations, Israel and Judah. Um, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, Ephraim, as uh, Isaiah used a, a couple of times here in this passage, is the northern kingdom. And so the, the, the nation's been divided and they each have their own lines of kings. And Isaiah is a prophet in Judah uh, during the time, in, in Isaiah 7 at least, of Ahaz, uh, king of Judah. And you can see Judah's fear because Israel in the north has partnered with Syria and those two kings have gotten together and, and signed a peace treaty and decided that they would attack Judah. And so the people of Judah, Ahaz, and the people there are, well, they, they shook like trees in the breeze. They were afraid of what was going to happen. And Judah's, Judah's solution, and actually God's solution ultimately, is going to be the nation of Assyria. Because, in fact, as we read verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And it was Assyria who came and conquered Israel in the north in 722 B.C. But Judah is looking to Assyria. He's looking to other nations. He's looking to other people for help. God, of course, instructs through Isaiah, instructs Ahaz not to be afraid because, verse 4, these two kings are merely smoldering stumps of firebrands. 
They're nothing to be worried about. The fire's about to go out. They don't really have a whole lot of power and authority. There's nothing to fear. There's, there's nothing for you to be afraid of because these kings are as nothing, God says. And so God begins and, and offers this sign to Isaiah. And when I went uh, to Isaiah, to Ahaz, and when Ahaz uh, says, No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign we know, the sign we know all too well, verse 14. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Notice the very natural language there. Conceive, bear a son, give him a name. It's, it's very natural language. That's, that's how it goes, right? That's how children are born. They're conceived and then they're born and then their parents give them a name. In fact, you get the, the same language in verse 6 of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. And then it goes on with those, those famous names. A child is born, a son is born. Is given. It's all very natural language. And so the sign to Ahaz is there's going to be this son born to deliver you. There's going to be a son, and he's and he's part of the imagery here is he's going to be fully man. He, he's conceived and he's born, all very natural language. Except he's not going to be a mere man. He will be fully man, but he's not going to be, he's not merely going to be a man. He's more than that because there's some oddities in these passages as well, in, both in Isaiah 7 and in chapter 9. Yes, she'll conceive and bear a son, but she's a virgin. Yes, they're going to name him, but they're going to give them a rather interesting name, this son. I don't know how much I don't know how much science you know. I don't know how much biology and human anatomy you've taken over the years, but children aren't born to virgins. That's not normal. So not only is he fully man, but he's also something different, something more, because he's conceived in the womb of a virgin. And and for that matter, you see his name in verse. 14, run to the library. Check out, you know, significant baby names. Google, popular baby names, 2020. This isn't going to make the list. Emmanuel will not be on the list, at least not in this sort of sense. There are, you'll find other nations, other countries that will use that name far more than we do. But literally, the name means with us God. It's, 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 it's Hebrew, of course. You want to learn some Hebrew? M is with, Anu is us, L is God. So literally, in English it would be taking the word with and the word us and the word God and cramming them together capitalizing the W and saying, here's your name, with us God. 
this child born who's coming to deliver Judah is going to be God in the flesh. He's going to be God with us. When, he's, when this child is born, all very natural, it's a supernatural birth nonetheless. Because God comes and takes on flesh to live as a man. It's this picture of the birth of the deliverer. That's Christmas. And already you're reminded, oh, wait a minute, that's right. At a time when Israel, at a time when the church was at its fear, danger, aware that the world was stacked up against it and that foreign kings had actually conspired to destroy her, God says, I will deliver you. That deliverance is what we celebrate at Christmas. The fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Ahaz in Isaiah 7. He'll deliver his people not the way they, the first century Jewish mind expected it. They wanted a king on a white stallion with a sword drawn. He comes to deliver his people by his obedience in the flesh, his sacrificial death, his atoning blood to wash away our sin and pay for our debt, and the defeat of death itself through his own resurrection. In other words, there's this, there's this awareness that we who are born die. But Jesus was born to die. And so we sing the promised Messiah of Emmanuel, God with us, who will come and deliver his people. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And Isaiah 11 begins, and again, these are all passages that will be familiar to you. Christmas Eve services, lessons and carols services, um, these all frequently uh, read uh, at those services. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see the picture of a, a stump. The stump of Jesse. Jesse's family line has been cut back to nothing more than a stump. Jesse, you remember, is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, the father of King David. You know, when you've got a tree 
in your yard that's... You've got a fruit tree that isn't producing fruit. You've got a tree that's diseased or that's rotting from the inside out. What do you do with it? Cut it down. When you cut a tree down to the stump, what we expect to happen next is to rent a stump grinder or pay somebody else to do it and come in and grind that stump down to nothing and then use the bark for mulch or whatever it is you want to use it for. A tree that's been cut down to the stump is, in our minds, useless. It's, it's over. It's dead. You're getting rid of it. That's not the picture here. There's a, there's a, a rod of Jesse, a shoot of Jesse. There's a, a, a shoot that comes up from that stump and reminds us all over again that the line of Jesse is not gone. It's not eliminated. It's not cut off permanently, finally, and completely. David at this time has long been dead. Isaiah is not looking ahead to David. David has already come and gone. And, and I think in many ways he backs up to Jesse rather than David to tell us not that there's a new David coming, but there's a greater David coming. The one to whom the original David was supposed to point all along is the great king, the great ruler of God's people who's going to come and rule and judge his people. The kingdom had once been united. And there's coming a day, now the kingdom divided, and not only have we already read of the promise that in 65 years from chapter 7, in 65 years Assyria is going to be carried off, going to be destroyed, going to be attacked, and be gone, eliminated I mean, not Assyria. Assyria is going to conquer Israel, uh, the northern tribes, and defeat her, and, and you'll never see her again in, in Scripture. But there's Babylon on the horizon. It's going to come and defeat Judah and carry her people off into exile. That's Ezekiel and Daniel, by the way. That, that danger lies out in front of them. And, and you think this, the tree that was supposed to be this great ruler, this great king over God's people is now a stump. But there's a growth in that stump. There's a shoot. There's a, a rod of Jesse. There's a, a, a shoot that comes out. And ultimately, a branch that bear, bear, bears fruit. It's easier for you to say. In other words, this tree is going to be restored. God's people are not left a stump. God's people are not left to be ground and destroyed. But from this stump, the, the rise of Jesse, of the shoot of Jesse, of Jesus, Emmanuel, the God-man, he's the one that comes and gives life to this great kingly line. God's people hold together in Christ. 
And he comes at this, this bleak moment of a mere stump and shows that there is life yet to come. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the king that, that rules and reigns over his people. But he's going to be a king that rules with righteousness and equity. Jesus is that shoot. And in that shoot, God's people have life. Back up to chapter 9. To pick up on another image um, from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The idea of darkness, everybody at some point in their life sleeps with a nightlight. When you're young, you're afraid of the dark. When you're little, when you're young enough, you're, you have this notion that if the lights go off and it's really, really dark, that's scary. Darkness in a, in a movie title or dark in a, in a song title and we expect it to have sort of a somber, sad, depressing kind of tone. We, we are aware of the opposite of darkness and light and light good and dark bad. That's why when we talk about the world getting darker, we mean that it's becoming more and more dangerous for the church, that, that the light of the church is going out and we're afraid that, that that might actually happen. But notice, notice how the birth of Jesus is described in Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The light of the world, Jesus comes to dispel the darkness. Jesus is born to push back the darkness. Or we could look at Malachi uh, chapter 4. Uh, in Malachi chapter 4, um, and Malachi, that right before the blank page before Matthew. Malachi is, is late in Israel's history. And, and if you think about what's, what Israel's about to face, 400 years of silence between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New. 400 years in which God won't speak to His people directly as He has been. 400 years as, uh, of, that, of not having a prophet be God's voice, God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel. And notice Malachi 4 verse 2, but you, For you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings." There's 400 years before the birth of John the Baptist. And yet hanging in their ears is the assurance that there will be that day spring. That sun of righteousness. That the light will 
shine again. You know, 400 years is a long time. I mean, it's a long time for us. 400 years is a, is a significant length of, of time. In fact, back up 400 years from today, and you've only got a handful of people at Jamestown. You don't have a Declaration of Independence. That doesn't exist. You're still over 150 years away from that if you back up. 400 years is a long time for us. Not so much for God. But you can imagine the, the people of God needing that assurance, that reminder, oh, that's right, the day spring is coming. The son of righteousness will be born. And so even as we sing, O come thou day spring from on high, we're taking this language of Malachi 4, recognizing that we too live in this in-between time. We have the promises of God from the past and we're still waiting for him to come back again. And 400 years is a long time and it's been over 2,000. It's been almost 2,000. That's an even longer time. But time matters not to God. Because the reality is, we get this exact same illustration in Luke chapter 1. In Luke 1, Zechariah, John the Baptist, has just been born, uh, just been named John, and, and, and Zechariah, his father, had been, had been um, mute for the last nine months or so, and finally he's able to, to speak. And, and we read... Uh, in verses 76 to 78, and you, child, will be called the prophet, speaking to his son, John, the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring in the King James, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. What are we celebrating at Christmas? We're celebrating the birth of the light that comes to dispel the darkness. To cast the darkness out for good. We might think that the world's getting darker, that it's becoming more and more dangerous to be a Christian, that the church is about to be squashed, and yet these images from the Old Testament, all taken from very similar times in Israel's history remind us that God will not let his people come to ruin. Look back at Isaiah 22. One final passage. And we, again, you know, we don't have time to unpack all of these, um, these passages. Isaiah chapter 22 There's this point in Israel's history where Shebna is going to be replaced by Eliakim, and Eliakim, uh, we'll read, is going to be given the key of the house of David. Isaiah 22, beginning in verse 15, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come to this, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, uh, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut a tomb, cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize 
firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. Don't you just love? There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots. You shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons in that day declares the lord of hosts the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will cut down it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the lord has spoken Eliakim is going to come and replace Shebna, and he appears. You get all these great imagery of, of what he's going to be like, at least up through verse 24. And, and you, know, you know those people. You know those people with the key rings and all the keys, and they jingle when they walk. And, and you know what you say when you see those key rings with all the keys, and it's on their pocket? You know what you say? You think to yourself, that guy must be important. Because he can open anything. He can unlock anything. That's what keys do. Keys lock and unlock. They open and they close. They free and they bind. And that's the picture. That Eliakim, whatever he does, he has the authority to lock and to set free. To lock and to unlock. To bind and to loose. To to hold and to set free. There are, it's, a, it's a symbol of his power and his authority over the people of God. But in Eliakim's case, you know, they, they say power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Eliakim was corrupt. He didn't use that power and authority to the honor and glory of God. He didn't use that power the way he was supposed to. It seems he was sort of nepotistic in his dealing out of, of offices and, and, and roles and, and position. He didn't use those keys to the glory of God. And so, verse 25, the keys are taken from him. And so the writer of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel says, not only come Emmanuel, God-man, come Dayspring, the, the sun that rises to the spell, the darkness, come O righteous king, shoot stump of, uh, from the stump of Jesse, but come key of David. Come and rule and reign over your people with righteousness and equity, as we read just a few minutes ago. Jesus would rule in all perfection, in all righteousness. His power never went to his head. His authority didn't corrupt him. 
but He rules and reigns over His people. In fact, Jesus doesn't hold the key of David. He is the key in the song that we sing. You notice that each of these images from Judah's history are all images of danger and threat to the people of God. They all reflect some sense that the people of God are in danger. They're going to be destroyed. They're, they're, they're going to come to an end. The line is going to die from either without or from within. They all show that the people of God are in peril. And every single time God comes along and says, let me remind you that I will not let that happen. In other words, we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel to celebrate the birth of Emmanuel, the day spring, the shoot, the rod of Jesse, the key of David. Not just to celebrate the birth of a baby in a manger, but to encourage us because we too live in a time when it seems, if we judge with our eyes, that the church is in peril. May instead we be reminded by God's promises that He will never, ever let that happen. The promises to Judah are the promises to us. God will preserve His people. And He won't let insiders or outsiders destroy it. May we celebrate that hope even as we live in this in-between time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming and the longer He delays, the more assurance of these promises we need. So run to these promises for your hope and for your comfort. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you promise us, you assure us, we may fear for the church, but you will preserve your people. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, uphold us with the, the light of Christ born this Christmas dispel the darkness even in our own hearts and minds that we might more fully and joyfully embrace these promises for our good and your glory. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.